Amen. Thank you, Jessica. Not just anybody can play the piano like that. You've got to have a license to play it like that, right? That's awesome. Well, it's great to be back with you, and uh, I know it was probably a fairly ordinary week for most of you. For us, as you know, the leadership went. Uh, we traveled over a thousand miles um, there and back this week, and we went to a pastor's conference called T4G in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and it was just a grand time. I'm, I'm very encouraged. Next week, we will have an opportunity. I've asked Corky and Sam to share a few things that they have gleaned from this and uh, personally, and hopefully we'll have a, a word for you guys in how we can apply these teachings to our congregation as well. Um, but we went with our, we went hungry for God's word and our wives were hungry for God's word. And I think we can all say that we were very blessed. We sat under tremendous teaching um, and just to be in the atmosphere of there was a little over 10,000 men there and a little over 2,000 women in the, in the Yum Center. Um, we did not eat in the Yum Center, but there was food there. Uh, it's a KFC thing, but um, <clears throat> stadium sh- seating. It was a tremendous time and all the voices lifted up in praise. I think it was a glimpse of heaven uh, to say just to hear that many people packed in that place, and we were packed, and it just everybody had a heart for God, um, and it came out in our singing, and it came out in the preaching. It was a it was a wonderful time, and um, came we all came back with a stack of books. You enter in in this particular conference. They like to they like to give you books because they want to encourage pastors in their preaching and in their ministry, and so they handpick. The panel there handpicks books to give that they think would be good for us. And you walk in and there are pallets stacked this high with books. So every time you go in, you get a book or two free. And when you walk out, you get a book or two free. So we each came home with a stack of books. So we have lots of reading to do with that. Um, Thank you for your prayers, for your investment. I know I'm very encouraged um, in the gospel as a result of that. Hopefully it will show in my uh, preaching this morning and uh, will stick with me for a while, at least for two years till the next one uh, happens. But um, special thanks to the Warrens. They lent us their van. We did not take it all the way to Kentucky. We actually borrowed the Warrens' big mega van so that the Moss kids and the Roberts kids could all go one place at one time. And we took the Moss van all the way to Louisville, Kentucky. So mega vans were put to good use. Thank the Lord for that invention. But we just really appreciate it. And we had a few of you sent me texts of encouragement and prayer. And um, it was uh, very appreciated. And we definitely felt your prayer. So thank you. It's a great honor and privilege to be before you and to, to crack God's word open with you this morning. And as you know, we have been in the Gospel of Matthew And because we've been there for quite some time now, making our way through it, you would know that the main message of Matthew is that Christ is king. Jesus is king. And everything about Matthew says that Jesus is king. Everything is right about him. He fits the description. He has the right genealogy. He had the right birth. He had the the right birth at the right place. He has the right parents. He has the right message. He was given the right tests and passed those tests. He had the right affirmation from his father in heaven. So everything is right about him. It all fits perfectly. 
And we've been looking at his miracles and his teachings on discipleship in Matthew's chapter 8 through 8 and 9. And even his miracles, the way he displays his power, the way he chooses not to display his power, the miracles that he does, the miracles that he does not do, it all communicates his deity. This is indeed the promised Messiah. He has come into the world. It is God incarnate. The king is with us. And I've got a lot to cover this morning. So I'm going to jump right in and just read uh, the section of scripture that we will expound. Not the whole thing as I usually do up front. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. We're going to look at the power of Jesus this morning. And when he got into the boat, you will recall, just to back up a little bit, the last message, Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. He, took, he brought that sermon down the mountain, and he was performing miracles. And he was giving teachings of discipleship. But he was uh, decided it's time to move on from this place in northern Jerusalem, or northern Israel, rather, around Galilee. It's time to bring my ministry somewhere else. So... He is gathering his disciples, likely the twelve and maybe some others, to sail or row or float across the Sea of Galilee. That's where we are today. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea Obey him. There's Jesus and his disciples. Possibly, if you follow chronologically, possibly it's nighttime. They're out on the waters. The disciples, most of the disciples worked in the waters. They know the waters. They understand the waters. And they're on their way across the Sea of Galilee, approximately 13 miles to get from one side to the other. Long ways, eight miles wide. Jesus is asleep, and as you know, Jesus is fully or truly man, 100% man, and so as man, he does get tired. Uh, he has been ministering, he's been preaching, he's been healing, he's been ministering, and if you minister at all, you will know that ministry is very taxing, it wears you out, you get tired, you pour your heart out to people, and so not only while the preacher is preaching, do you get tired, and I see heads nodding sometimes. But after the preacher preaches, he gets tired too. I like to, I, I'm, I crash a lot of times on Sundays. Not sleep, but, well, unwillingly I sleep sometimes. My head does this too. But it is, it's exhausting. And Jesus is exhausted. He's tired. Um, and so he is sound asleep. And during this time when he is sleeping and they're rowing or sailing or floating across the lake, a storm pops up. And you know how sometimes storm pops up even in our day and age. But this was, 
I, I read this was fairly common in this sea, this huge lake, that storms would just come up without any warning. And next thing you know, the winds aren't just a little breeze, but now they're full-blown winds and the, the sea is in an upheaval and water is coming into the boat. The boat is being tossed around. They're holding on for literally for dear life. If you've ever been in any kind of rapids or a boat or a storm out on the water, it is terrifying. You feel very, very small. And they're feeling very, very small and their lives are threatened. And their response to this is absolute panic. Now, these are men of the water. They understand it. They're not going to panic over a little sprinkle or a storm or a few breezes. This is the text. If you look at it in all the Gospels, uh, the words that are used there is to let us know this was a great storm. It wasn't normal. It was abnormal. They had reason to be afraid. And of course, their reaction was panic. I am panic-stricken. They are panic-stricken in this situation. They wouldn't fret over this if they were not. They're about to get thrown out of the boat. They have themselves in a situation where they are very aware that things are out of control. And if things don't happen, if things don't change, I have no power to do anything. It's all over my head then we are doomed. They're scared. They're perplexed. Not only are they scared and trying to hold on for dear life, but they are also perplexed at why their master, Jesus, is asleep during this great storm. Two possible reasons that I can think of. One is he really is exhausted. He's, he's that exhausted. And sometimes we humans can be so exhausted that no matter what goes on around us, we're oblivious, oblivious to it and we're asleep. I've seen people walk into rooms, sit down, they're asleep. They don't know what's going on. I've seen we've carried our kids out of church sometimes. They're just out of it. They're passed out. They're asleep and we can be singing and preaching, sound systems going on, they're out of it. You take them, they're like dead bodies. You put them in the car seat and you get them home. Hopefully they don't wake up and pitch a fit. But we, we get tired and it's possibly uh, that after all of that ministry, he's just that tired. Or it could be also because he is God the Son. He just knows how things work. He just... Um, this divine part of him is able to just have this peace that passes all understanding. So much so, he feels so safe and secure in this boat as it's tossed. He doesn't have a, a worry that he's going to perish. Because he just has that kind of faith. That's just the, the being that he is, the person that he is. No matter how uncontrollable things seem, he's not panicky. Could be one or both or any of those things. But the disciples, they do not have a peace in their hearts. They are scared for their lives. They're not that godly. Uh, they're not asleep. They're not that exhausted. And here's what they want to know. They wake him up. They have to shake him, apparently, because he's not waking up on his own. Uh, they didn't have a foghorn available to them. And they want to know in verse 25, they say this. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So what are they thinking as they're hanging on for dear life? They want him to do something. Why are you just sleeping? 
Why are you not awake? Mark Mark's account on this in 438. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, let's be honest. If you were in that boat and you just saw Jesus perform all those miracles and you're about to die. And he's sleeping. What might come to your mind? The processing this and quickly. You don't care. You don't care. Don't you care? Don't you see what's going on here? How can you possibly not rouse yourself? You care about us for a second instead of your own sleep. For crying out loud. You ever done that? You ever found yourself in a situation in life? It's hard. Maybe even life-threatening. And you question God. You're God. You got all this power. Look at my life. It's falling apart. It's out of control. Don't you care? You see the pain because you're God. You, you even feel it. You know what it feels like. This is a miserable feeling. Don't you care? What I'm going through, what I'm experiencing, can't you see how crushing this is? As a matter of fact, people's lives are in danger. I'm in danger. Where are you? How can you sit idly by? Or as the psalmists would say, how can you just stay so far off, so far away, so far removed when I, my life is literally crumbling Around me and you do nothing. And don't say it's because I don't have faith because I do believe in you. Don't bring it back on me. It's you. And you don't care. But Jesus, how does he respond to this panic and this accusation in verse 26? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Wow, how'd you like to be characterized by that? Little faith. Jesus taught in his sermon when he was on the mountain. The reason we get all panicky and twisted up and anxious inside. The reason we care too much about the things around us. Things that we need for sustenance. Things that we need to stay alive. Is because we don't. Trust him. We don't seek him and understand that actually, though things seem uncontrollable, they're in perfect order. And so he had taught them on the mountain that about food and drink and what you're going to wear. You're, you're anxious about these things. But let me just remind you, the birds in the air, they're taken care of. Did you take it upon yourselves to make sure that they could snatch that moth out of the air. To make sure that that worm came out of the ground at that particular time where those birds were so they could be fed. I clothe this. I care for this. How much more you? That's, that's our focus. It's about God. It's giving ourselves to God. Believing in God. Seeing him there when he's not even there. Remember the definition, the definition of faith. The unseen things. It's a trust and it's a confidence. And he says, when we don't live like that, it twists us all up inside because we can't be in control of everything. We have to trust him in order to be at peace. And you have that option. We can try to control everything in our own lives, 
which is impossible. And therefore, there's going to be times, maybe our whole lives miserable, filled with twisted up anxiety. We're not at peace. Even when it's time to go to sleep, we can't sleep. Walk around with bags on our eyes. Walk around with sickness because our bodies can't handle all the anxiety. We need to be on medication and cut this back and so forth. It's just it just doesn't match up with who God created us to be. He created us to trust him and ye have little faith. We don't think he's loving enough. We don't think he's powerful enough. We don't think he cares about us enough. We go ballistic on God. Sometimes we go ballistic on everybody around us and all our anxiety. Interesting that the apostles, the disciples had just witnessed all these miracles. Now they're taken from that beautiful, safe kingdom oriented atmosphere and they are put into the boat where the storm comes and that quickly they are questioning God. How many miracles does it take to build strong faith? How many miracles does it take for us to go from little faith to strong faith? Or at least consistently. So apparently, at least for them, when things are going well, the faith is well. When things are not going so well, the faith is small. What does that tell us about faith? Well, apparently, at least some of the faith was based on circumstances. Man, God, you are awesome. I love you. You're, you're just, you can do anything, God, when things are going wonderful. And then you, we get into these places and we say, um, where'd you go? Because surely if you're still the same God that was over there when the sun was shining, you're not with me now. If our faith is based on circumstances, then we're going to be back here with that group of people that's all anxious and twisted up inside and doesn't have the peace of God. And Jesus wants to set us free from that kind of living. Put your faith in God and live in peace. So even though they're convinced they're going to die and they, at least for that brief moment, concluded that God did not care Jesus in verse 26, here's what he does. Then he rose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. That quick. The storm was abnormally great. The winds, the waters. And now... The storm, the, the, the calm is abnormally great. Now it's just like a sea of glass. And I guess the sun's back up, the clouds are gone, there's nothing's being blown or tossed. It's just that quick as if like you're reading a storybook to the kids as they sit in your lap. Well, on this page is the darkness and the storm and the wind and, and the frightening faces. And then you just turn the page and it's completely different. Now the sun's out, there's happiness in people's hearts and the sea is calm and it's as if Jesus just with one word, that quick, that instantaneous, he flipped it. What's the main lesson in this passage? And I know that we hear messages sometimes about it and I know that we hear Sunday school sometimes about it and the conclusion is, uh, the bottom line is Jesus will calm the storms in your life. Is that what 
Matthew under divine revelation. Is that what God is teaching us through Matthew here that Jesus will calm the storms in her life? Because he did. But does he always? Is that true? Does he always calm? Didn't the disciples, if you read scriptures, didn't they have storms that he didn't calm? The promise is that he's always with us, whether he calms a storm or not. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But what is this passage teaching us? And a lot of times we just have to look at scripture and see the effect that it has on people. Just like we have to hear their responses as they converse with Jesus. What are they saying and what is he saying back? And when we do that, we see that they didn't respond like guys, you know, and hold each other's face in their hands and say, guys, he'll take us through. He'll calm all the storms in our life. This is great. It's so awesome to be a disciple of Jesus because now we know any storm that comes up from here on out, he's going to calm it just like that. That wasn't the reaction they had. Here's what they learned. Verse 27. They marveled. What, what emotion? What thought process? What were they marveling at? The storms calmed. They marveled and said, what sort of man is this? That even winds and sea obey him. They were astonished, astonished, not at the calm storm. They're astonished at the person that's in the boat with them. They're re-astonished. They've been astonished at him ever since the beginning because he's an astonishing person. And now because he can rebuke nature, he can rebuke the wind and, and, and the skies and the sea at what, what the created order does. He can talk to it and it responds. They're astonished at that. Not creation. They're astonished at the God of creation. And they're astonished and they're marveling because as they process, based on their Christian background, if you will, or their biblical education, who can do such a thing? They would know only God could do something like that. So now they find themselves, basically, they're thinking, I'm in the boat with God. I mean, I kind of knew it, but I didn't know it. They're still... Learning, just like we are. How does this all fit into our world? How does Jesus fit? How does the biblical truth fit into what we know is true? And what do we need to change in our thinking? And they're learning right here. They cannot believe in a sense. They're astonished. He's God. They're shocked. They're, they're terrified as a matter of fact. You think about what they're marveling at, just as they were shocked and terrified at feeling so vulnerable and out of control as they were tossed to and fro in this boat. The, the, the man that's even more powerful than that. What do you do with that kind of power? They're feeling small. They're feeling vulnerable. Because if they're scared at the storm, what do you do with the person who just tells a storm? Sit, now give me your paw. What do you do with that kind of power? They're frightened. It's that holy awe, it's that marvel that, that we sense sometimes. Hopefully at, at some point in our Christian lives when you just know God is God. And we, we think we're big and we think we have all these powers, but when you... When you're up against that, you realize I am way out of my league and I'm uncomfortable about uncomfortable about it. 
What do you do with that? And they realized that their fear was misplaced. Now they have what they should have had all along. They should have feared God in the first place. Instead of the storm. Instead of not having the right clothes to wear. Instead of not having the food and their barns filled up. They, what they should have feared all along is God. I mean, how do you measure that kind of power? And if you're in the boat with that kind of power, how safe can you feel? If you're not really good friends with somebody that's that powerful. What do you do if you're in the presence of God or this kind of power and all of a sudden you realize, wow, God is real. He really can do these kind of things. Uh Uh-oh. If he's got that kind of power, am I safe? How safe am I around somebody that can just speak a word and this happens? That's the question we all have to answer. Am I God's friend or am I his enemy? Because if I'm his enemy, take note. He doesn't like there's things this this powerful God does not like. In fact, Scripture tells us there are things he hates and we have some of them. We are born with some of them. Unholiness, evil, sin. And so that's why we want to search the scriptures to find out, well, if that's real and true, then how do I be his friend? And we be his friend, of course, by putting, he tells us, we put our faith in him. We forsake the evil, wicked things. We repent of our sins. We throw our lives at his feet in our smallness, in our humility, in our poorness and say, I have nothing. Can I just please have your mercy? That's it. It's the gospel. That's the witness. So the raging sea is glass. And after that, they make it across the lake after that lesson. And uh, you would hope that things get better. But here's what happens after that. More power is unleashed. 28 through 34, Matthew 8. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. Coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out, and they went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything. Especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Not a fun greeting. Many times in places that Jesus goes, he's greeted with people. They're hungry. They've heard about him. They want his word. They want the message, the good news. They want healing of some kind this time. Across the Sea of Galilee, he has met with possessed men. 
And it gets worse. It starts to turn into a creepy horror flick. The scene could be a wonderful, creepy horror flick. Because not only do you have demon-possessed men, but they live in the graveyard. They live in the tombs. They live among dead people. And there's a cliff there, and there's, they, they have caverns, rock that's carved out, and they lay the bodies in there. It's a tomb. It's a graveyard. And these demon-possessed men are living with the dead people in the graveyard. And not only that, they're so powerful, no human can overcome them. They've tried. Doesn't matter how many big, strong weightlifters you get, carpenters, whatever, seamen, doesn't matter. You cannot do this. They're too powerful. We've tried. So what we have to do, we just have to avoid them. We've got to walk around them as far as we can get. You don't want them to see. You don't want them to smell you. You don't catch their attention because they might come after you. And if, if they do, you are in trouble. You're powerless. And not only that, other Gospels accounts, they, it tells us that they are not only not friendly to other people, they're not hosts. Welcome to Gadarenes. They are unfriendly to themselves. They, they want to, because they're demon-possessed, they will mutilate themselves. They'll cut themselves, they'll throw themselves down, whatever. So now you have these unkept men, and probably, you know, long hair and unkept beard, and, and, and dirty, stinky, smelly. They don't care about smell goods. They don't care about bathing in water. They're, they're, they're possessed by demons. It's, so they're, they're gross. They may have blood on them, dried blood. Who knows? They're crazed. And on top of all that, the other Gospels, as if things can't get any worse, here they are in the graveyard. It's creeper, creepy, it's stranger things. And they, they're naked. Just when you think things can't get any worse, oh great, they're naked. <laughs> Crazed, naked, demon-possessed men. Not a good scene. It's creepy, it's risky. Bible tells us that demon possession is real. The Bible tells us that there are individuals in this world that are possessed by demons. And that means what it says. It means that the demons come in and they control you. And it can happen to different measures and different degrees. And some people are more possessed than others. And the demons are able to get more control over some than they are of others. Some give just part of their lives. Sometimes it only comes out in, in, in mental gains and or lies, or manipulation through words. Sometimes if they're really, really controlled, the demons will take control of their bodies and they mutilate themselves and they get control of their minds and they fill them with evil. The Bible says that there are doctrines of demons. and We have doctrines of God, doctrines of demons. There are, there are lies, specific lies that they have in their toolbox that they can use to, to lure people in their minds and get into their heads and their lies and their they're designed to draw people away from God to, to think that He doesn't exist or if He does, there's no hope and it's just darkness and they want to exclude us like the lone wolf and we'll find ourselves possibly living like that. We live according to lies. We live that, with, with this idea that there's no hope ever for me to get well or for life to go well. And if they get in our heads like that, sometimes we will want to hurt ourselves. Sometimes we will want to kill ourselves. We see people in the Bible like that. Sometimes demon possession means a sickness or a deformity or something. It's real. We don't see it as much today, but it is real. It can bring about blindness and deafness. And it's not unusual in the Bible to see people like this. And they strive 
to ruin and destroy and kill, whether internally or externally, just like their father, the devil. And it is unnerving to even think about it. It unnerves me to think about that this that this exists, and it's even more unnerving if you come anywhere near something like this, because you will feel powerless. I remember one of our missions trip to New York. Um, we we met this guy in the in the park, and he was not kind to us. We were there to uh, offer really just a cool glass of water. Literally, we were offering drink and so forth because there was a lot of homeless people, and this man. This young man was not at all kind to some of our team. And uh, I walked over and, boy, there's an eerie feeling with this guy and the things that came out of his mouth as he accused the church and Christians. It was doctrines of demon right there. And, uh, it, you know, I thought I was a pretty strong Christian, but I wasn't relying on myself during that time. My mind was thinking about God. It's It's eerie. It is a very real, real, real power. It's from another dimension. I will say that there's a lot written about this. And uh, be careful. Because there are even Christian books that say things about demons and how it all works. It's not necessarily true. We just don't know that much about it. But we know enough to know that it's real. And what the Bible does make clear is this. Get away. Get away from evil. Get away from lies. And immerse yourself in the truths. And draw near to Christ. Christ is the answer. I mean, it sounds simple, but that's it. That's the answer. Don't have anything. Don't open the door. Don't say, come on in, because I I got you. I'm bigger and stronger than you, evil or lie or whatever. And I'm just going to flirt with you. And you're going to be my boyfriend or girlfriend for a little while. And then when I'm finished with you, I'm going to get rid of you. Don't do it. It grows. They cry out. They welcome him. If you want to call crying out a welcome, they, the, the demons, the demon-possessed people, they cry out to him. They know him. They know it's Jesus. Jesus had to reveal himself to man. Who do you say that I am? And who do you, you know, can you make connected dots? They didn't need to connect the dots. They knew him. They recognized him. Jesus, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Not only that, they actually know some theology. They actually have an eschatology. They know more than some Christians. My theory is because they're angels, they're fallen Demons are fallen angels. And at one time, they stood before the face of God. At one time, they served God as they were created to do. And apparently, God revealed some of the plan of creation in heaven. So they know they also heard the pronouncement of judgment against them. And so they know that time will come when they will be tormented. And who will torment them according to this text? God. They know this judgment. They live under this judgment. And so they're asking, hey, son of God, uh, aren't you, is this the time? Is this the judgment? Aren't you a little early? They're trying to understand and put their knowledge together. Will I face judgment? They know they're going to be tormented. That's what they live with. They, live, they, they know that the clock is going to go off and they will no longer have free reign because Christ is king. 
They know that. They don't want to be cut off short, so they say, well, if it's not the end judgment, can you just put us in those pigs? Demon possession. So we have a, we have a, a problem in this um, text, I think, because in the world are powers that man can't control. Man can't contain. They're scary. They're creepy. And uh, so basically, you just have to do whatever you can to ignore them, avoid them, live your life around those evil powers and influences. But then you have this man, Jesus, who is proclaiming to the world, I'm God. And he's beginning to display and manifest the powers of heaven that confirms that. And so in, in, in a sense here, you have a showdown. He's healed people. He has authority over sickness. He can speak truth like nobody else. What happens when you put him up against demonic powers that pretty much in some areas, at least, they get their way. They're king. They're master. What do you do with that? Because if Jesus can't do something in this situation, then the king who has come to redeem and restore the world, there's still going to be pockets of evil. There's still going to be things that aren't fun and happy and things that we have to avoid. Dangers, fears, creepy things. So this is a big deal. It's a showdown of power. The world cannot contain it. What happens? If Jesus is God, if, if Jesus is king like he says he is, then he should be able to do something about this situation that nobody else can. A herd of pigs were feeding at a distance. The demons begged. He cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Verse 32, he says, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And the pigs rushed over a cliff and, of course, were drowned. So who's stronger? Who has to listen to who? Who's the boss? Who's the authority? Who's the greatest power? Jesus. He does what nobody else can do. Just like with a storm, a single word. He, he, he didn't make a big show out of it. He's not showy. That's not how he displays his power. He just says, go. And then they're gone. So even the devil, even those powers that are above man are in subjection to Jesus, which is a great thing if we're his friend. The reason the Son of Man appeared, 1 John 3, 8, was to destroy the works of the devil. And what Matthew has been saying all along is that he fits perfectly with his genealogy and his birth and the things he's doing. He's saying the king is here and he's setting up his kingdom. Therefore, the curse is being reversed. The world is being redeemed. It's being undestroyed or undestructed. I know I'm making up words, but that's the idea here. And even the demons, they're being pushed aside. They're being controlled. They're being caged. 
You, humanity, are being set free from things that you have not been set free from before. And this is the king and this is how he's going to rule. And he's got things going now. He started bringing order to the kingdom. He started his reign and rule. And he's going to finish it and he's going to rule forever. And that's going to be what it's like. He, he has final say. He has all authority. Just in and of himself, a word. A word. This time we don't get to see, learn from this passage on how the disciples respond like we did in the boat. Because they don't say anything, at least in Matthew's account. But there are reaction. What, what can we learn here? What's the bottom line if we look at people's reaction? In other words, what effect did God have on them? What effect is God having on you right now? What, what is the Holy Spirit teaching you right now? What does he want you to learn? Because when God is around, we learn something. He has a, an effect on us. What is he saying to you through this message this morning? What did he say or what was the effect to that town and those folks. Well, the herdsmen, they, of course, I've already read it. They run into the city and they tell people what happened. But more specifically, the thing that they're focused in on is not, man, guys, 2,000 pigs were shot. We're going to starve this winter. They're like, what they want to talk about is, you know those crazed, naked guys that we're scared to death of and they're demon-possessed? You will not believe what I just saw. They're not talking about the pigs. Those guys, they are now in perfect peace. They are sitting there and they can carry on a conversation. And they're not hurting themselves anymore. And it's not even creepy and eerie over there because of them anymore. So all the town, of course, wants to come out and hear about this. These de demon-possessed people. And what is their reaction? What is all this about? Well, Matthew told us in verse 34, they came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Why? Well, look, some people say, you just ruined my agrarian livelihood. I make my living off pigs, 2,000 pork chops, 1,000 pounds of bacon, gone. Hot dogs, and that's not kosher. Anyway, the whole thing isn't kosher. And you, you get into all that stuff, and they shouldn't have been raising pigs anyway, right? That's not kosher. And You get into all that stuff. Is that what they're really thinking? Do they have dollar signs? Are they picturing themselves gaunt over the winter, whatever season it is? What are they fixed on? Why are they begging him to leave? Is it because we can't make a living with somebody like you around? Well, Luke puts it like this. So Matthew says they were begging him to leave their region. Luke 8 says, uh, for they were seized with Great fear. And then Mark says, uh, I like how Mark puts it. Um, they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man. This is Mark 5. The one who had the legion 
Lots of demons going on. They saw him, what? Sitting there. Clothed. Somebody gave him something to wear. Hey guys, yeah, it's a little awkward. Let's put something around you guys. Clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. There's not rejoicing. The first reaction is fear. They marvel just like the disciples. Why? What sort of man is this? See, they, they were scared of the demon-possessed people and went around them because of that display of power. Now they're scared of Jesus because of that display of power. You can, you can just see him swapping stories. You, one word? One word did this from that guy? One word? He didn't touch him? He didn't subdue him? He didn't throw power on him? One word? What do you do? They were uncomfortable with that kind of power. You know what? Not everybody embraces the power of God. You see a miracle, you hear of a healing, not everybody marvels in it. It doesn't draw everybody to God. Some people say, you know what? I'm uncomfortable with that kind of power. I'm uncomfortable with that kind of authority. I'm not so sure I want to be around that any more than I wanted to be around the demon-possessed people. I don't know that I want somebody with that kind of power and authority telling me what I can and can't do. I just assume you move on. God, Jesus, let me just live the life that I've been living. They're begging him, asking him to leave. Have you ever been under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you're not saved? And God is after you. They call him the hound of heaven because he loves you. He wants you to come back into his fold. He, he, he has something in mind for you. A life of, of, of peace and joy and prosperity. Eternity with that. And he sees that you're under torment. He sees that you're anxious. He sees that you have been deceived by lies. And he's calling you in. And you realize that you're living an unholy life. That's usually the first thing he begins to show us. Not just can't just be about the love. That's not what keeps us out of heaven. I mean, out of hell. No, out of heaven. Sorry. It's the sin. It's the sin. That's got to be dealt with. And, and what do you do? I know what I did. I don't really want to hear you right now because I know what you want. I know you want to take control of my life. I know you want to be able to tell me what to do. And some of the things that you want to tell me what to do, I like. Matter of fact, I love them. And you just can't tell somebody that loves things that they can't have them anymore. And so I just assume you be gone. How do we interact with the very real presence of God? It's unsettling. They want him to leave. That was the, that was the effect of the power of God. Sadly, God brought grace to that region, that dark, dark region, and they did not receive the grace. But God did not leave them graceless. Mark tells us a little more about what happened. I'm going to read it because it's incredible. In verse 18, starting Mark 5.18. As he was getting into the boat, this is the other side of the story. The man who had been possessed with demons 
begged him that he might be with him. Man, I mean, you've just been saved. You've been delivered. You're seeing life in light instead of darkness now. You don't want to hurt yourself anymore. You have hope. And you don't want anything, you don't want to ever be that far away from Jesus anymore. I mean, this guy just changed you and transformed you. And all you want is him. And so this wild, crazed man is now just, Jesus, can I, can I just stay with you forever? He's, he's begging him. They were begging Jesus to leave. And he's saying, can I just come with you? And he did not permit him to, Jesus. But he said, um, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. It's an act of mercy. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. And so as the people who said, we're uncomfortable with the power of God and this message and all this stuff, we, we want you gone. Forget the grace, Jesus says to this man here. You go, you be my missionary. You go and tell him. And there's the grace. They didn't get rid of Jesus. Now they have him in the form of a missionary. They have him in form of a disciple. They have him in the form of somebody who is excited about him, marvels at him, and cannot stop talking about the mercy of God because he's a living example of the mercy of God. In their midst. It's a good lesson for us in, in go. I mean, when we're transformed... We have the great commission. We are to take the, the joy that we have and the truth, whatever it is, whatever level, whatever measure, whatever we know about God that's true, and share it with somebody. Because the gospel still saves people. The hope is still there. The invitation is still there. Light can still come into the darkness. And we have that. We're missionaries in our families, in our towns, in our places of work. Just tell people what God has done for you. It might mean you might have to tell them that you were a sinner. And if you don't know that you were a sinner, then you don't have a gospel message to share with anybody. You've been transformed. So one of their own is a missionary. You have your own. Go and tell them what God has done for you about the mercy of God. And then lastly... We get into chapter 9 now. So getting into a boat, he crossed over and he came to his own cities back in the previous land on the other side of the lake. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, and Jesus knows people's thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts for which is safer? Or, I mean, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. But that you may know that the son of God, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were what? Afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You already know by now the response. There's that holy fear again. 
They're afraid. What do you do with this kind of power? What do you do with somebody who has such authority? So, quickly, they're back on the other side of the lake. Jesus has a crowd again. He's in a home. And this guy, paralytic, obviously, he's quite unwell. He's sick. He can't do... He cannot do for himself. He, he has to depend on the care of others. And there are people like that. And sometimes it takes a lot of people to help when you cannot do anything for yourself. He has four family members, buddies. I don't know what they are exactly, but they love him. And they want to bring him to Jesus. And apparently he wants to go to Jesus. And there's faith in there. Jesus sees the faith that's taken place here to want to come before him. And so they, they bring him there. The house is crowded. They got him on a pallet or a stretcher of some kind, obviously. He, can't, he doesn't have control over his body. And so what do you do when the house is packed, when the church is packed, and there's no screen outside for you to view what's going on in the inside? You, you, if you have this kind of faith and desperation, you want to get in. So Jesus is in the house. He's teaching just like I am. And lo and behold, some Roofing material begins to fall onto the floor and they are making a hole in the roof. Uh, not just a little hole, but hole big enough to lower a human body down. And he just happens to pretty much land right at the feet of Jesus. Here is this, this paralytic, this man who is sick. It's humiliating. It's humiliating to have to have people care for you. You know our independent spirits. I don't want you to do anything for me I can do for myself. And even if I can't do it for myself, I just soon you not try it anyway. It's an independence. It's, it's sometimes it can be humiliating to have to need people to, to need people to care for you. But on top of that, in that culture, as you know, if you were sick, it's because you sinned. They attributed every sickness to a personal sin. Now, that's not biblical. We are all sick or broken because of the curse of the world generically, generally. And so we all are afflicted in that way. It's not always because of a personal sin. We just live in a fallen world. We catch things. Things happen. But it can be for a personal sin. But their assumption was, man, this guy's got, he's got issues. He's backside and he's doing something. He's not right with God. He sins. So here he is at the feet of Jesus. He wants to come to Jesus' crowd or No crowd. What does Jesus say? When he saw their faith, verse 2, he said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I think it might be evident why they brought him to Jesus. Did they bring him to Jesus because he needed forgiveness of sin? Maybe. I think what he wanted was healing. That's the expectation. But Jesus sees this faith. He says, your sins are forgiven. By his word, by his pronouncement, by his authority, he just pronounced forgiveness on this guy. As far as we know, he didn't ask it. He didn't say, I came for forgiveness. The other guys didn't say that. Jesus knew his need. The thing that he needed the most was not physical healing. The thing he needed the most was forgiveness of sins. Because you think... Life is bad now in this world, no matter how healthy or unhealthy you are. Wait until the next. What you need is forgiveness of sin so that you can be the friend of God. And Jesus displays his authority that by his word, by his pronouncement, 
and his pronouncement alone can we be forgiven of our sins. He has that power and that authority. We can't forgive ourselves from our sin against God. He has to forgive us from that. That's what we base our forgiveness on. Not how we feel. Not if it's a good day in our devotion or not. We base our forgiveness on the pronouncement that Jesus keeps his promise. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So he exercises his authority to forgive sins. Jesus has power over nature. He has power over the world of demons and Satan. And he has power over the moral world. He has power over immorality, sin, defilement, evil that comes from our own hearts. He can speak to that. He can make it right. He can make it go away as far as the east is from the west. He alone has that kind of power. The Pharisees weren't happy about this because they know Well, only God can forgive sins and never make the connection. And sadly, that's what happens when we're blind. We just we get hit in the face with truth. When we're blind, we don't make the connection. Well, only God can forgive sins. Oh, you must be God. No, only God can forgive sins. You're a blasphemer. You're an enemy. We're already thinking about the cross. You got to think of ways to get rid of you. Now, just to show... That Jesus really did forgive the sins because we can always just say words. Oh, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Well, how do I know? Just to show them. And then he says, uh, what does he say? I can't remember. Uh, get up, uh, Pick up your bed and go home. And what does he do? Again, from the mouth of God comes a pronouncement of authority. Rise. Take up your bed. You came through the ceiling. Just walk out of here. And that's what he does. And they marveled. What's harder? Jesus asked them. Is it harder to forgive sins or is it harder to heal people who are hopeless and helpless? Well, both are pretty hard, right? We can't do either one of them. That's God. Just to show his power, uh, I can do both. If you had any doubt about one or the other, I can do both. No, that's power. And the effect was they were afraid. Some glorified God. Some went against him. They didn't repent. They didn't receive the grace. What sort of man is this? We have to answer that question. Jesus is real. And according to his word, he is with us right now in the presence of his spirit. What kind of man is this? What sort of God is in our presence right now? What sort of God is knocking on the door of our hearts? What sort of God does reign and rule and sit on the throne? A good God, a bad God, a powerless God, a partially powerful God, a partially all-knowing God? What sort of man is this? He has power over all things. And if that's the kind of God we see him as, we're pretty foolish not to give him our all and submit it all to him. 
and befriend him and beg for his mercy. Jesus is God being all of him. That's why we are here to exalt God. That's what we, we do as a church. We exalt God and, and that's why we use his word and we edify one another and we encourage one another, not with the local news, but with the word of God. This is what you need in your life. And let me give you this word or this exhortation. We need to be immersed in it. And that's why we want as missionaries to go and tell of the mercy of God to evangelize the lost. Because there are plenty of them in our culture and on our street. Maybe in this building this morning. Praise be to God. What sort of man is this? Answer that question. Confirm it in your heart. Friend or enemy? This morning. May the grace of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us until we meet with Him again. And may He bless the preaching of His Word this morning.